Um, the first year the boys weren't so sure about it. I don't think they passed me the ball once, so I learned how to tackle pretty well. If, if you and I put in the same amount of effort, we should get the same, um, expect the same sort of service or result. It just hasn't always been the case. I think it's really important for people to see that all Australians should be offended when there's racism or there's discrimination. Potentially without sport, we, we would never have had that opportunity to experience together, to learn more about each other and to work out ways for us to, to overcome things together. So that products that are a higher risk because of what they contain would be regulated as medicines rather than foods to address those potential risks. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello, I'm Tim Gable. Welcome to the first edition of the Sport Integrity Australia podcast, Onside. Shortly, we'll speak with Australian women's sporting pioneer, Katrina Fanning. Well, the launch of Sport Integrity Australia on July the 1st heralds a new era for sports integrity in Australia. The opening of the new agency completes stage one of the implementation, which draws together the existing integrity functions of the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority, the National Integrity of Sport Unit and the safeguarding functions of Sport Australia. Stage two will see enhanced functions implemented, including an Australian wagering scheme and enhanced outreach and education. Our podcast, Onside, will explore the integrity issues in sport, the challenges sports face and highlight the achievements within our industry. Today we'll discuss the issues of racism in sport and how the Black Lives Matter movement has shone a light on this issue in Australia, the role sports play in reducing barriers, gender equality and proposed changes to supplement regulation. Well, my first guest today is the Australian women's sporting pioneer, Katrina Fanning. Katrina, a proud Wiradjuri woman, played for Australia in the first ever women's rugby league test in 1995. She went on to play 26 test matches for her country. Katrina has contributed so much to the community and she's also on the Sport Integrity Australia Athlete Advisory Group. Katrina, thanks very much for joining us on Onside today. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Firstly, how does it feel to be called a pioneer? Because I would imagine you just grew up wanting to play sport, loving sport. Well, that's right. Growing up in a little country town of Juneau, rugby league's all anyone talks about. So it really didn't um, think about what that looked like from a bigger point of view, just that that's what everyone in town was doing. That's what brought everyone together and I wanted to be part of it. Tell us about growing up in Juneau. Look, come from a large family, um, probably nearly 100 first cousins, so you couldn't really get into much strife with everyone without at least one auntie and seven cousins knowing about it. Um, but it was a place where um, sport was central to everybody. You played all sorts of different things because there wasn't you know, a huge amount of people, so I played a bit of netball and volleyball because then those girls would play soccer or touch football or, or whatever. So you sort of learnt... Um, a lot more about what goes into making sport special, about teamwork, about volunteering, all those sorts of things. And, I'm, you know, they're all lessons that I carry through today. You wanted to play rugby league from an early age? <laughs> I did. And look, I'm um, always in the backyard playing and those sort of things. Um, uh, got to about uh, eight years old and decided I wanted to actually play proper footy um, and have a, you know, team jumper and those sort of things. And um, Really was just lucky that uh, my age group of boys in Juni, there weren't too many that wanted to play rugby league, so they were actually quite desperately short of players. Otherwise, um, probably would have been a bit harder to get registered than than the hoops we had to jump through anyway. 
Um, the first year the boys weren't so sure about it. I don't think they passed me the ball once, so I learned how to tackle pretty well. Yeah. Um, but the, over the next few years we, um, you know, got in the swing of things and, and I think it helped them a lot too in the way that they looked at girls being able to, to take on all sorts of tasks. What did your family think about you playing rugby league with the men, with the boys? Yeah, look, mum wasn't impressed. <laughs> um, and I think um, in some ways uh, she probably felt a little bit embarrassed by it just because she wasn't sure what other people would think. Um, but she also had a pretty strong sense of um, if you really want to do something, you can. So she was probably a bit torn about it. She was, I think the first couple of weeks she was a bit worried I was going to get hurt and then that flipped around to being worried I'd hurt someone else. Um, and once she sort of got past um, that the contact was, you know, something I could handle and she was fine, um, came to plenty of my test matches and those sort of things along the way. So it grew on her as well. Growing up, I would imagine that you just wanted to fit in. Was that the feeling and you wanted to be just part of what everybody else was doing? Yeah, absolutely. There's um, um, in, in a little town like that, um, that sense of belonging and community is really strong. Um, but of course, you're either in that or you're not. And I'm... Um, I'm sure there was plenty of um, there was probably a few kids growing up that uh, didn't get to experience that. I, you know, played in the school band, did all sorts of things because I just really liked um, being involved. You know, some of those things like I was terrible at band, but they put up with me. Um, but it was just good to try things, and, and you know, you don't know what you're going to be good at unless you give it a, a fair fair go. So um, I was really lucky to get lots of those different opportunities. In a small country town, having grown up in a small country town myself, there is racism. Um, did did you encounter much of that? Um, not not too much. There was a couple of um, uh, kids that in my year at school that um, you know would think it was funny. There was one guy for the first three years of high school that asked me if my sandwich had coon cheese on it every day. It took me a year to realise that he was what he was even talking about because yeah. it wasn't something that um, came up too often. Probably only really saw it um, harshly a couple of times, and usually. Um, around um, Laurie playing uh, for, for Juni as well. And because he was so good at rugby league, that was what people... Laurie Daly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's what people defaulted to was to, to use racism to try and bring him down because he was, you know, scoring 10 tries a game and those sort of things. So that was really the only place um, that I saw it as a kid. But, um, but growing up and, and looking back now, um, things like uh, mum and her siblings, um, the year before I was born, 1972, was the final year in New South Wales where it was actually law that if someone in town didn't want Aboriginal kids enrolled in the school, they couldn't be. You know, so um, there was lots of things that were silent barriers that um, um, I guess had us behind the start line that you didn't even realise at the time. So you're going through school and my mum's engagement with school was um, pretty limited She was because it was just not something or a place that she felt embraced uh, through her own childhood and things. And I guess there was a bit of not wanting to be embarrassed by not understanding the homework or being able to do the canteen roster and those sort of things. So that played out in sort of disengaging from it rather than being embarrassed by it. The Black Lives Matter movement that is going on at the moment, does it bring back memories of sort of some of the struggles that you've had over the years? Uh, look, um, it certainly um, uh, brings back lots of uh, emotions. Our family directly haven't had someone who's um, died in custody, but certainly those sorts of... Um, uh, when those things happen, it affects a much broader group of people. And knowing that um, uh, at any given time, the way you're going to be treated um, in police custody, um, within a government service system or by a policy is different to other people and, and not in a good way, um, certainly does hang over your head. Um, uh, the constant, uh, we were more likely to, to, to be told to, you know, get, you know, make sure you're dressed properly to go down the street or the welfare will get you or you know, that was probably um, more of the narrative for us growing up, but it was certainly that um, you had to um, um, 
be uh, better, uh, look cleaner um, than anybody else just to not draw attention to yourself because there was it always felt like there was someone watching. It's not just about um, police custody, etc. We're talking whole equality issues here, aren't That's we? That's right. That's right. The whole... Um, uh, that um, if if you and I put in the same amount of effort, we should get the same um, expect the same sort of service or result. Um, just hasn't always been the case. Probably my generation, and luckily the town I grew up in, that was um, a much easier road than it has been for many um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And um, and that can be a quite a difficult conversation to have at times. But I like to think that um, whilst my experience wasn't perfect, it certainly is. Um, um, a lot further along the way to the Australia I aspire for us to have, that I want our communities to be, and, and it proves that it is possible with um, goodwill, and, and certainly sport played a big role in that. It didn't hurt that um, all of mum and her siblings were great at sport and that, that the town, um, that was a, a really easy way to start to build relationships once they were allowed to come and live in town. I was just about to ask you about the role sport played in overcoming some barriers and sort of that acceptance that you, you craved at that early age. So, yeah, look, it was one of those things. I, I, I was a pretty shy kid as well, so um, being able to meet friends just by walking up and talking to people was not um, not that easy for me. And, and, and quite often, given that we had so many cousins, you'd sort of just default to family um, friendship groups, whereas sport was a way to test yourself, to, um, to be committed and build relationships with people without really having to give um, um, be too personal, I guess, and to, to give too much away. Um, and that it was a place where... Um, especially in a small town um, where people really encouraged and um, celebrated um, people coming along to play because we needed the numbers and the relationships and the friendships and those sort of things um, grew from there as it does um, for most sports teams that you go through experiences together that potentially without sport we, we would never have had that opportunity to experience together to learn more about each other and to work out ways for us to, to overcome things together. When did you realise you were pretty good at rugby league? Um. See, yeah, as a kid, I probably didn't um, uh, think that I was all that good at it. I just enjoyed playing it. And um, then, of course, at 12, you sort of couldn't play anymore for a long period of time. And it wasn't until I came to Canberra, I was actually playing a bit of soccer and came across a bunch of uh, women who were playing in the local comp. Um, and it really, we, uh, the Raiders happened to be playing in the background on the TV. I think it was at the Irish Club, actually. And um, uh, someone, you know, from their table was making a comment about uh, something that happened on the game and I gave my two cents worth and, and really started back into the game because they said, well, if you know so much about it, why don't you come and play? Um, and then I was a bit, well, you know, I played when I was a kid. I think I can play, but can I really? Um, and probably that first season was a really big challenge. I think for most people when you that first big tackle in, in contact, when you go up levels and that sort of thing is always the first challenge of am I ready for this, am I going to... Am I going to rise to the challenge or am I going to back off a little bit? I'm going to have a bit of a handbrake if I hit the ball up or anything. And for me, it wasn't um, necessarily that I did anything particularly um, overly talented, but it was more just that um, I was confident I had the right um, um, uh, character, I guess, to, to test myself with that and to, to put myself into that challenge and to see how, how I'd go. So for me, that was probably uh, more important than any individual skill that, you know, if I practice enough, I could build that up, but that confidence and that... I guess that um, stubbornness <laughs> to be able to stick at something that was, you know, it's pretty tough if you get it wrong. Because by this time you'd moved to Canberra and just to go back a little bit, um, once you reach the age of 12, uh, women can't play, yeah, can in, play. Boys, in boys' competitions. 
There are no women's competitions. That's right. So effectively you had to walk away from the sport for a little bit. Yeah, the irony was I went off to play hockey with um, Arthur Summons as two girls in Wagga, uh, okay. Cathy and, um, uh, and Janine. So, uh, you know, I still had a little bit of connection to footballers, but, yeah, had to play you know, a range of other things because there just wasn't a competition available, which, you know, um, uh, which wasn't great. But in those days uh, I was really not so much passionate about any one particular sport. I just like getting out and doing something um, – uh, different and new. So I was probably playing, you know, a different sport every night of the week, to be honest. So you've moved to Canberra in your 20s. Uh, you realise there are opportunities to play rugby league. You go on to play a rugby league test, the first ever women's test in 1995. How did that feel? Because, um, you know, as you mentioned, you've been out of the sport for a little bit, came back, you weren't sure how you'd go. Yeah. Suddenly you're playing a test match. Yeah, and being the first one, we had no idea um, what the Kiwi skills were sets were like. Um, we'd seen them at a couple of pre-game functions and they weren't um, they weren't small ladies, that's for sure. They were very physically well prepared and um, looked quite strong. So that first game um, was really quite a mental challenge. But um, getting that green and gold jumper um, and, and I thought a lot about my, my grandparents, my um, extended family about sacrifice and things and, and just um, um, I always um, like to focus on when, I, when things got tough, it wasn't just me I'd be giving up on if I didn't try and rise to the occasion, that there was a lot of other people's effort and sacrifice and time that went into um, wherever I've been fortunate enough to get. And um, that, that day at Lidcombe Oval, after a, a fair spray from Tommy Radonikas as a uh, warm-up speech, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, I think the first 20 minutes, you know, I didn't really feel anything except this you know huge amount of adrenaline and, and by then you're into sort of the arm wrestle of the game and... And it's and it sort of eases into just feeling like a game again. But that first game was um, yeah pretty special. I think um, only a few days ago we went past the twenty five years for that um, anniversary. So um, doesn't feel like it's been that long though. Well, you went on to play what twenty six Test matches. So that was the start of something special for you, wasn't it? Yeah, and it really opened my eyes to um, not just what I what rugby league could be, but that actually. Um, what my life could be about. Um, I'd not. I thought coming to Canberra was sort of the biggest adventure that I was going to have. Um, had never thought about much travel, even within Australia, let alone getting to go to um, uh, to England and, and and into the Pacific to play games and um, meeting a whole bunch of different people and the confidence um, that I was able to get through rugby league made me start to think about um, what I might be able to do for other people as well and, and what pathways they what they might be able to achieve if they're given similar sort of start in life. So did you feel as though, oh, listen, I am doing something special here because I'm a woman, um, Indigenous? Um, there are many aspects to this, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, look, at the time it doesn't feel like that because at the time um, each one of those steps is a battle. You know, the first time we got to go on live TV, all the commentators wanted to ask us about was really inappropriate questions about how we might strap body parts and things. So um, I don't think it's until probably about two-thirds of the way through the, my career when um, some of that support started to change and people's opinion around the game of women playing rugby league started to change. Up until then, everything, the next step's just the next challenge, um, whether it's raising enough money to be able to play, whether it's um, uh, addressing sort of stereotypes or um, uh, any of the things that went into to, to raising the bar each time, um, I don't think there was ever a time I thought, you know, this is really special. We're doing something new here. It's, um, it was more the questions of why aren't we able to do this and finding solutions to it. And I don't think it was uh, until um, once I stopped playing that uh, I guess you can relax from that and you feel like, well, um, I, I did 
um, the best I could with the opportunities that were in front of us and it's probably why since uh, I finished playing I've been as involved in administration and other things and advocating particularly for the women's game and, and for Indigenous um, community pathways um, because I know how special the game is and the difference it can make. Another aspect of life uh, that is very special to you, marriage equality. Oh, absolutely. So um, uh, the last uh, decade or so has really uh, brought out um, the best and worst in that scenario, you know, the, um, having to um, see a uh, basically a, a note go to every household in Australia to decide whether my relationships of, of the same sort of value as someone else's, um, you know, um, is, is actually quite a difficult thing. It felt like going back to the start line again and being judged just for a different component of who I am as a person. And um, we've got uh, three young kids and wanting to make sure that for them um, they can see that, you know, we're as normal a family as, as everybody else, um, that there's not something unusual or different or less about um, who we are and who they are um, uh, was, is really important. And even things like... Only this past weekend we um, had to go and get some medical attention. My partner um, has busted a bone in, in her hand. But the difference from a decade ago going in and having to just say that you're friends so that um, you didn't have to worry about uh, the person behind the counter making a judgment about whether I should be allowed to come um, and have information about Kate's health or not versus this weekend where um, that was embraced and and, and, you know, treated very much as um, an equal and next of kin and those sort of things is, is really important because, um, you know, we, we build a, our lives together and, um, and um, to make sure that the rules don't uh, treat us differently is really important. When did you realise that, you know, that you were attracted to, yeah. to Kate um, and I, I, coming to, to grips with your sexuality? Yeah, so Kate, um, uh, I, I knew I was gay a lot longer, a lot earlier than that, um, probably in high school in June, so that was a pretty difficult time. I'd I imagine was, so. It was, um, you know, in those days, uh, we still got um, the push across Australia for um, good facilities for, for women's sports teams now, so you can imagine even at high school, the you know, doing sport and PE, um, everyone just puts you in a room and you're supposed to get changed and dressed together, and that was really awkward time for me I found that really uh, quite difficult um, uh, and um, and really went into my shell about some of those things so it wasn't until I came to Canberra and in some ways felt like um, no one who knew me could see me that I could mm. start to express that that part of who I was and that was really difficult because it felt like um, I couldn't be my whole self in any one place um, I was either junior Katrina or football Katrina or gay Katrina and, yep. and the reality is I'm all those things everywhere I go. Mm. Um, but you forever trying to measure it so that um, everyone else feels comfortable and everyone else feels okay with what to do. And it, it took a long time to get to a point of um, not being um, awful to people, but actually um, a lot of that's actually for someone else to, to work out for themselves. And I can't control how someone feels or reacts to that, but I can just be my authentic self and show people how normal that is and how much um, um, I want to be part of the community and contribute like other people and, and then people can make their own judgments about that. But it took a long time to, to not feel responsible for how everyone else felt about it. How do you feel about being almost an advocate for a range of social issues, whether it be women's sport, Indigenous issues, an Indigenous voice, marriage equality? How do you feel about suddenly being called upon to, to talk about yeah. a range of issues? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a two lane sort of uh, highway. This one, I think. Um, on one one hand, I really like the opportunity to um, that we have a voice and we can be part of the um, the future of our sport, our community, and those sort of things. 
Um, but I don't want people to think that we, um, whether we're talking about um, female athletes or um, uh, Aboriginal communities, that there's only one voice that represents us. The point uh, that we need to get to is that um, there's diversity within all of those groups as well. So whilst I'm happy to... Um, to raise issues and to provide some points of view. Um, it's really important to, to, to know that there's lots of other points of view and mine's not perfect. Um, it's just another way of looking at things that we can all um, put on the table and try and figure out the next steps forward together. Do you feel as though we are making progress? Absolutely. And I think um, even just seeing some of our national sporting teams and organisations um, and player-led um, uh, approaches to uh, raising awareness around social justice issues around, um, I know with um, the work I do with the NRL at the moment that the players now can have a voice on um, issues outside of rugby league without fear of their contracts being torn up or being seen as um, too difficult to have in the roster because they get to get distracted by all this other stuff that we we see them as part of the community and that they're, um, they're not just footballers, they are um, uh, part of our community who are entitled to their views and um, we ask them to be role models on things um, constantly um, and they should be able to have a say in the things they want to have a voice about. Are you proud of the way that people have stood up? You, you saw the Australian women's basketball team, I'm, I guess that's who you're referring to there, but right across the board we've had sport stand up against racism. Absolutely. I think um, uh, the proactive nature of that now that um, some sports aren't waiting for an incident to happen to someone in their team, that they're not leaving it up to just the Indigenous players or the players who are the target of the discrimination to, to stand up. I think it's really important for people to see that um, um, all Australians should be offended when um, there's racism or there's discrimination. You know, um, we like to believe this country's built on a fair go and that if you, you put in the effort and you've got the talent, you'll get um, your just rewards. Well, we've, we've got to live that, not just say that. You're on the Athlete Advisory Group at uh, Sport Integrity Australia. Uh, formerly ASADA was um, where you sat uh, in terms of being on the Athlete Advisory Group. Do you feel as though as a, as a former athlete and with a range of experiences in other parts of life that you were able to, to contribute to what might go on in terms of sport integrity in Australia? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, the initiative around the um, advisory group is just fantastic. I think um, it shows a, a the, the sort of huge change in um, um, how this uh, the previous organisation and what this new organisation is is set up to do. And it's not um, just to sort of catch someone out. It's actually to make a level playing field for everybody and to work um, to the benefit of athletes, not to the detriment of them. Um, whilst there might be individual cases where matters need to be resolved, the overarching goal is to make sure that um, the sport is um, able to be uh, a level playing field and a place where everyone um, uh, gets the same opportunities to do their best. And, um, you know, certainly that group's a really eclectic bunch from different sports and different experiences and really robust conversations. But I think that that's, um, that's part of how we make... Uh, the right changes um, and stay on the right path is to have that diversity of opinion, to um, keep the core of what's special about sport um, at the centre of it and to work through the issues as they come up, the things that we know now and the things that we can't foresee um, um, and to have that open line of communication and to just keep building um, relationships that are focused on um, the best outcome for Australian sport is to, to, be, um, to be clean and to be fair um, and to to make sure that um, 
people feel like when they're sending their eight-year-olds off to play a sport that um, that's a pathway that's going to teach them um, the values that they want their children to have in life, regardless of whether they become an elite athlete or, you know, volunteer at their club sport of a weekend, regardless of what they do with their lives. And it's also important to take into account the pressures faced by elite athletes. Oh, and, absolutely. And the education aspect to grassroots, whether or not everybody's getting the right information, but fully understanding what it's like to be an elite athlete. Absolutely. And the pressures aren't um, just about uh, coming first. They're about, um, in many, particularly in our professional sports, it can be about providing for a much larger group of your family. It can be... Um, uh, things around mental health and being, you know, pushed to be sort of public faces of things that you're not ready to be. Um, and and um, it should be okay to just want to be a, an athlete in a particular sport and not have to do all those things if that's what you want to do as well. So um, I think uh, this process of giving um, former athletes predominantly a voice um, but that's still connected to what uh, that world looks like now, what it looks like for parents, um, some of the things that we've seen in the um, – in the supplement space, for example, like um, I had no idea uh, about the, the different bars that uh, um, my kids eat even, mm. um, you know, thinking, oh, well, that's better than a bit further down in the chocolate aisle. And it's not in some regards, right? So um, that that education component and just making it um, easy to access regardless of your background, the place where you play sport, the type of sport you play, um, and making it relevant to as many people as possible is really important work. And I think this, this organisation... Um, uh, is really well placed to deliver on that promise. Do you find yourself uh, educating others as you go along? Because you, you're out there, you've got three boys. The uh, supermarket uh, app's great. <laughs> do, do you find yourself uh, subconsciously almost educating people? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in a couple of ways, one around the you know how the the different products might work to to better inform you, but also. Um, uh, around that, um, the bigger picture around when someone's cheating or doing the wrong thing in, in the sporting world, that that has bigger impacts than just on that person. You know, that whole, with my, I've got teenage boys, so the whole idea of not wanting to be a dobber mm. is huge, right? And um, trying to get them uh, to understand um, that actually integrity in what you do is really important. And, um, and sometimes it might even cost you... Um, friendships or other things to do the right thing but it's it's always what you, it's it's what you have to do and, and to try and explain to them how to go about that as young men and to be good people is really important and so there's lots of um, what we're talking about in the advisory group lots of what sport integrity australia has now been brought together to do that's just as relevant to my kitchen table conversations that's how i that's mm. where that's where our education's done at home over dinner over meals um, you know when those sort of things come up taking um, the information that, that I get from these sort of forums as well to help them just to be better people um, regardless of, you know, they're, they're not the most brilliant athletes but they love sport, but uh, helping them to see that those are lessons that can be transferred to all aspects of their life. Yes. The, the win-at-all-costs mentality um, is a real issue in sport and you'd hope that by educating people and getting people to, to listen to people like you that that sport is there for other reasons, not just to win at all costs. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And a lot of the time the win at all costs is actually um, uh, someone else uh, living that through you. So mm. quite often we see that with um, adults on the sideline with kids at sport, for example, that the win at all cost attitude is actually not being driven by the child themselves but the expectations to, to, to make someone else happy. Um, I, there's not many – like I get to catch up with uh, lots of former athletes now and I can tell you 
I can't think of the last time any one of them raised um, uh, their their win loss record, their fastest times. Their mm. um, what they talk about is what they got out of sport, the friendships they made, the challenges that they overcome themselves. Those sorts of things, which were all great life lessons. And you know that might be easy to say when it, you know, I'm talking about people who do have a cupboard full of trophies and things, but. Um, um, but your sporting playing career in particular is such a small fraction of your life, both in years, but also in the impact that you have um, on the community. And um, um, and it shouldn't be um, the only way you measure how successful you are as a person. You've had enormous um, contribution to the community through, we've already mentioned, a, a range of issues. Uh, there are many boards and the Canberra Raiders Rugby League Board, amongst other things. But you, you sometimes, I guess would get the feeling that you're being pulled in every direction. Do, do you feel as though you're, you're stretched uh, from one side to the other a little bit because you are an advocate for so many issues? A- absolutely, and that's why it's important to, for me to try and um, provide build more opportunities for other people to grow into those sort of roles as well. One, so there's a diversity of views, but two, um, you know, you just can't be in all places at once. Um, there's been times where I had to sort of stop and and cull some of those commitments as well because I'm not being um, the parent that I want to be and our boys are old enough to now need, you know, people you know on the sideline while they're having a go at their sports and those sort of things. So trying to find that balance is really important. And coming back to the um, where do I think I can, you know, I've only got so much time I can devote to this type of work. Where do I think I can have the most impact and then, um, you know, really just dedicating my time to that. Yes, it do. Yeah, it, because it is, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, a stretch, but you do it so well. Um, do you judge yourself? Um, do, you, do you think, oh, I, I could be doing this better or I could be doing that better or I really need to speak out about something that yeah. is, you know, whether it be the Black Lives Matter issue or marriage equality, Indigenous issues, women in sport? Uh, absolutely. I, I think I probably spend... Um I don't think I spend a whole bunch of time, to be honest, on the things I think I'm getting right. I just sort of put them to the side. Yeah. And, um, I quite often have a, um, you know, in the mirror conversation about um, did I get that right? Did I say enough? Did I did I include the right people in that opportunity? Um, and and you know, not necessarily what the outcome was, but could we? What can we learn from it? So um, there's been times where, um, like when the marriage equality um, vote came through, where my partner and I sat there and realised that um, I probably don't spend much time volunteering or helping to advocate in that space um, as well. So, you know, having a look at at, at least subtle things that we could do uh, that could help in that space. But um, um, but it's also trying to pull back and make sure you don't spread yourself so thin that you're having no impact anywhere. Yes. I'll finish with the question that I asked at the start about whether or not um, you're comfortable being regarded as a pioneer in, in women's sport, do you, do you feel comfortable? Uh, not really. Um, I think I, uh, I I always look at it as, at it as um, you know, 1995 wasn't um, a pioneer because that was the first test match. There was decades of people's hard work and sacrifice for the game to even be in a position for test matches in 1995. So um, I think it would probably, you know, I think I've, um, made the most of the opportunities someone else has provided before me and I'd like to think that post my playing career I've tried to create just as many opportunities for the next generation but I certainly only think I'm part of a, a much longer pipeline of people who've done a lot to progress um, women in rugby league but women in sport and um, 
Um, so you're probably not comfortable with that term at all. But um, happy with that, um, you know, I've at least made a, a fair um, effort in doing my bit. You haven't thought about politics by any chance, have you? No. Come on. <laughs> Just a little bit? No. <laughs> no, it's not for you? No. <laughs> too busy. <laughs> Katrina, it's been lovely having a chat to you today on Onside. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Good to see you again, Tim. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. It's now time for our new segment, From the Highlight Reel, where we go back in time and relive an important milestone in sport. This time we're joined by Sport Integrity Australia's own Emma Johnson. Emma, as a 16-year-old, was the youngest member of the Australian swimming team at the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games. She won bronze in the 4x200 relay and finished fifth in the final of the 400 IM. Smith clearing away from them. Wagner looking at the silver. Egnizeki trying, fighting for the bronze. Coming on strongly as Johnson. She'll get fifth. They go in though and a wonderful performance. Yes, uh, <laughs> you're pretty close there um, towards getting a medal in the 400 IM, but just edged out at the end. Yeah, so that was my um, – the 400 IM was on the first day of the Olympics and I um, remember walking out for my heat swim in the morning and just being absolutely terrified and um, walking out there and I was lucky enough to have my parents in the crowd and, and found them, looked at them and thought, okay, I'm all right. So jumped in, um, swam probably too fast in the heat and ended up swimming in lane five, so fast, second fastest qualifier for the final. Um, and then from there on, to be honest, the rest of the day is a bit of a blur. But to finish fifth um, in my um, first event on the first day was um, was pretty surprising and, and, and pretty satisfying. And then later in the meet... Emma's moved to third place. The baby of the team is looking terrific. Oh, fantastic split by Emma Johnson. She's gone 2.01 which was just outstanding. And Susie O'Neill, there's no way anyone's going to swim past for the bronze here. Yes, uh, on the podium with the bronze medal. Absolutely. Uh, that was um, definitely beyond my my plans or what I thought I, I would achieve at that Olympics. And um, I didn't even know I was going to be part of that relay team until we were actually there. And um, I remember a coach saying, you know, we want you to be part of the relay team. Are you going to do it? And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I'm up for this. But um, doing it was swimming in that relay team with people like Nicole Livingston and, and Susie O'Neill and um, Julia Greville and to come home with a bronze medal was was amazing um, and one of the one of the highlights of my career definitely in my life. Thanks for going back in time and sharing your experience with us Emma. A powerful moment and an inspiring one. We're now going to take a look at the proposed clarification of the supplements regulation and the cross-agency collaboration between Sport Integrity Australia, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, TGA, and Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. At the moment, the new clarification is not yet in force and the government is yet to make an official decision, which will happen in the near future. Alongside me to discuss the proposed clarification is Dr Adam Cook, Director Listing Compliance at the TGA, as well as Dr Naomi Spears, Sport Integrity Australia's Chief Science Officer, is joining us over the phone. Firstly, to you Adam, what is the reason behind the proposed clarification and why do you see a need to clarify? Thank you for having me, Tim. Well, the, I guess the first fundamental to appreciate is that there is an interface between the regulatory system for foods in Australia and that for therapeutic goods or medicines specifically. 
And there can be certain types of products that could be either a food or a medicine, depending on how they're presented for use to, to consumers. And uh, that interface uh, can be difficult to navigate for uh, manufacturers of products, bringing them to the market, indeed for consumers to differentiate between certain products are medicines or therapeutic goods because of the claims that they use. So this clarification is being brought in to uh, make it clearer for consumers uh, and for uh, manufacturers and suppliers of products that may be either a sports supplement or uh, a medicine as to which side of that fence they fall on. Given it is a clarification, it would suggest there has been confusion in the marketplace. Yeah, that's right. And that's because uh, foods are allowed to have health claims uh, and foods in Australia are regulated uh, under the Food Standards Code that is maintained by Food Standards Australia New Zealand, as you said earlier. Uh, and on the other side, we have uh, medicines and, and other therapeutic goods, which also contain claims. And there can be an overlap between health claims and therapeutic claims. And so that overlap gives rise to some confusion Part of the difficulty around this, the sports supplements is that uh, there is a specific uh, code under the Food Standards Code uh, for sports supplements. And so there's definitely a space in the market for sports supplements that are foods. However, uh, because they contain claims relating to sport performance mm. that can also be therapeutic claims, this gives, gives rise to uncertainty about which side of the fence they fall on. And I guess that's where Sport Integrity Australia comes into the picture, Naomi, because you need that clarification, don't you, on supplements in particular? Yeah, we're at Sport Integrity Australia are really concerned about supplements and the effects that they might have on athletes, um, the health effects and the anti-doping implications. Um, and so we're really keen for this clarification, which we think will make the system uh, easier to navigate for consumers and also safer for consumers. Yes, yeah, so I mentioned to Adam a moment ago that there is confusion in the marketplace, but equally so in the sporting community about what they can and can't take in terms of supplements. Will this, to a certain degree, make it a little clearer for athletes that you know this is in a supplement and that's not in a, a supplement? As Adam was saying a moment ago, that sometimes the marketing overtakes exactly what is in the product. The end situation will actually be similar for athletes in terms of um, they'll still have to make a risk-based decision about what products they use. Um, and these even listed medicines um, still require athletes to consider those risks. And we still recommend that athletes use a batch-tested product in that space. But I do believe that this will make um, those products better quality um, for athletes so that the risk is lowered. And so how important is it for Sport Integrity Australia to be involved in this cross-agency collaboration when you're looking at something like this? How important is it? It's, it's so important. There's so many parts of the sport integrity um, ecosystem, I guess, that we can't um, control on our own. And so it's really critical for us to be working with partners like the TGA to bring about these kind of changes that have a really positive impact for athletes. Adam, what form will the clarification take? Will it be wording? What, what sort of things are we looking at there? So under the Therapeutic Goods Framework and the Therapeutic Goods Act, uh, under which medicines are regulated, there is a power for the Secretary to uh, uh, declare certain types of goods to be therapeutic goods. 
uh, that that authority is there expressly for these sort of situations where there may be ambiguity as to whether a product is a food or, or a medicine or indeed a medicine and some other type of good. So we're going to use the existing or proposing to use anyway the existing authority that's within the Therapeutic Goods Act to make a, a declaration uh, specifying what attributes of certain types of goods related to sports performance uh, are associated with therapeutic goods uh, so that it's clear which side of the fence they fall on, that they know they're not foods and that they definitely are medicines. So when somebody goes into a supermarket, is it going to become clearer to them? I think the in a, in a supermarket, uh, what will provide clarity and confidence is that some products that currently don't carry an Austell number, which is what signifies that the product is regulated by the TGA, may appear on the market with an Austell number if they... Uh, are a therapeutic good and come in within the uh, medicines regulatory framework. That Austell number is a sign there that the product is being regulated uh, under the Therapeutic Goods Act and by the TGA and provides additional confidence for consumers about uh, the measures that are in place, the national regulatory system and to ensure the safety, quality and efficacy of that good. Naomi, of course, there was that 2016 academic study which said that one in five supplements contained a banned substance. And in terms of batch testing, is this going to improve the clarification? You mentioned it a moment ago, but is this going to improve the clarification for people buying off the shelf? The clarification will make it clearer for athletes and other consumers um, the type of product that they're using and, as Adam's mentioned, how that product um, is regulated It'll still be really important for athletes to use products that are batch tested uh, to make sure that they're using the lowest risk product. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important that they, a lot of these products will be more tightly regulated now, and I think that means that there'll be lower risk and better quality. And, Nami, given the changes or clarification, does it make it easier for Sport Integrity Australia to, to give advice to athletes? It won't fundamentally change the advice that we give to athletes. Athletes will still need to be careful of every product that they consume and will still be advising athletes to use batch-tested products. But I do believe that this will lower the risk for athletes. And, Tim, the, the, the clarification that we're proposing uh, will improve consumer and athlete confidence for two main reasons, really. Firstly, that uh, having clarified uh, whether... Uh, these products are foods or therapeutic goods and medicines in particular, means that um, the product risks that may vary ac across the whole spectrum of sports supplements are controlled uh, accordingly, accordingly under the foods regulatory system or the therapeutic goods system, uh, which establishes two different frameworks according to the level of those risks for foods and medicines. They're quite distinct. So that products that are a higher risk because of what they contain would be regulated as medicines rather than foods to address those potential risks. The other facet that's quite important is because there's clarity over which side of the fence these products fall, uh, us as, as regulators, so the TGA for therapeutic goods and states and territories and, and local authorities for foods, can more rapidly take action if we detect potential uh, unsafe products 
or compliance issues with these products so that so that any potential problems that may be out there can be addressed more quickly. So the confidence for consumers and athletes alike arises for both of those reasons. The most visible sign when you go into a shop in a supermarket and you see the sports drinks, is that part of your regulation process there in terms of clarification? No, so we're not, we're not targeting all uh, sports supplements t- to be clarified to be therapeutic goods. It's a, a, a subsection of what would be considered to fall under that broad spectrum of sports supplements. So protein powders, for example, we see as clearly being uh, foods and, and fit for remaining to be regulated as foods. What we're seeking to do is clarify that sports supplements marketed in a manner and presented for a use that is for, for sporting performance, but which uh, present a higher risk to consumers because of what they contain, or they're presented to have uh, a function as a medicine, uh, they should be regulated as medicines because there's a specific regulatory framework established to regulate those. So there's, there, there will continue to be many goods that are sports supplements which will be regulated as foods, and you've mentioned some of those, the, the yeah. protein powders in particular. And Nami, we've seen obviously health issues relating to dietary supplements, amongst other things. Uh, it certainly improves in terms of the information uh, that the general community can get when they go into a shop. Yes, we're, we're really concerned about the health implications uh, for athletes and consumers in using these products um, and the information that's available to them should be improved through this process. How big an issue is it, Naomi, in terms of supplements and, and people not really knowing what they're putting into their body? Is it a, is it a huge issue? I, I believe it is, yes. As you mentioned, Tim, there's, the, there's recent studies that show that like one in five products on the, on the mar- in the market um, will contain ingredients that were not declared on the label. So that means that people consume these products um, and actually unknowingly consume are poisons that they wouldn't have chosen to take if they'd known they were there. So they could be doing them. They could be putting themselves at a significant health risk uh, because of the presence of undeclared ingredients. Yes, and Adam, can you pull up some of the marketing that's done? Because obviously they do sell it as a specific product, and they say that it's healthy and you should use it all the time. Can you can you regulate that under the? Uh, therapeutic goods framework, there are specific requirements for what can be included on a label and what can be included in advertising. We have the therapeutic goods advertising code. I won't begin to list many of those requirements, but obviously the the principal requirement is that they have to be truthful uh, and supported by evidence. And we have measures in place within the framework to be able to monitor uh, the truthfulness of those sort of claims. They also have to be consistent uh, with public health campaigns as well, generally. Uh, so they need to fit within the broader landscape, broader health landscape within Australia, both from an evidentiary point of view and from a reasonableness point of view, I suppose. Yes. Just as a final question, if people would like to know more information, it, it's available on a website? On yes, your website? that's right. So on the TGA website, we do have information about our proposal and the consultation process that has been occurring to date. And we're continuing to update that page as as our, uh, I guess, project evolves. Nami, in terms of athletes, how will they get this information? We'll continue to communicate with athletes um, from the Sport Integrity uh, Australia uh, mechanisms as well. So as this uh, change progresses, we'll absolutely be keeping 
um, athletes and sporting organisations in the loop about the changes that are forthcoming and the timeframes in which those changes will be made. Thank you very much, uh, Dr Adam Cook, Director Listing Compliance at the TGA, and Dr Naomi Spears, Sport Integrity Australia's Chief Science Officer. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. More with Onside in just a moment. And now for our segment from Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. G'day guys, my name is Riley. I'm a mid-distance runner from the ACT. The question I have from left field today is how long do things stay in your system for? Now this is quite a tricky one because a lot of factors come into play and it is very, very individualized between people. So what could take somebody 24 hours to clear from their system could take someone else 72 hours. You just never know. Now the example I always like to give here is caffeine, right, from coffee. If I have a coffee after four o'clock in the afternoon, I'll have quite a lot of trouble getting to sleep that night. Whereas someone like my grandma, she can have coffee after dinner and still be lights out, sound asleep by nine o'clock in the evening. So the advice I always like to give is just steer clear of that substance. If it's a medication that you actually require, and of course apply for a therapeutic use exemption, or simply allow time as recommended by your doctor for that to clear out of your system before returning to competition. That was clean sport educator Riley McGowan. Thanks for listening to Onside. And just a reminder, for future episodes, follow and subscribe our podcast. Thanks again for listening to Onside. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au or check out our Clean Sport app.